Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Olivia Singleman. Olivia is a senior counsel in Foley's DC office focused on government investigations and defense, as well as litigation. In this conversation, Olivia shares about growing up in a multilingual household in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Specifically, Olivia talks about how growing up, her parents only spoke German and Spanish to her, and she had to learn English elsewhere. She also discusses what it was like being an only child, and she shares how she actually had interest in ballet and dance, and one of the reasons she attended Duke University for college was due to their dance program. She talks about life after college, moving to Las Vegas to be a field organizer for the Obama campaign. And then she discusses what it was like transitioning to law school and how, as one of few students of color, it was a little difficult adjusting to life. There's also a really funny part of the conversation where we riff a little bit about how law school feels a lot like high school or middle school, and we talk a little bit about the backpacks we wore as law students to carry the heavy books. And of course, Olivia discusses her legal practice, but I also get her to discuss her role in the firm's associates committee, which over 30 episodes into this podcast, Olivia is the first member of the associates committee that I have had on the show, which is certainly something I will need to address in future episodes. And additionally, Olivia gives some fantastic advice to law students about the importance of reaching out to practicing attorneys so that you can learn more about the profession. And actually, after we stopped recording, she said, you know, I hope law students really do take that advice because she says, I remember when I was in law school and I didn't realize that people were sending emails and having phone calls and really getting to know what lawyers did, whereas she was like, I just thought if I just read their websites, that was enough. So law students, hopefully you take Olivia's advice. And for everyone else, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Olivia Singleman. Olivia Singleman, welcome to The Path and the Practice. Let's just jump right in and have you give your professional introduction. Sure. Hi, my name is Olivia Singleman. I'm a first-year senior counsel at Foley in the D.C. office. I'm in the Government Enforcement Defense and Investigations Practice Group, JEDI, and a secondary member in the Securities and Enforcement and just start business litigation practice groups. So as I was just telling you, and as I do on this show, I always have the lawyers say everything about their practice. And I'm like, <laughs> let's not talk about that yet. <laughs> let's set all that aside and figure out how you got there. So just starting with where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, pretty much my whole life. I, my parents moved there when I was four months old. And I was there through right before I turned 18 when I moved to North Carolina for college. It's so funny. I don't think I had any idea you were from Baton Rouge, and I feel like I should know that <laughs> for some reason. So now I feel bad. But can you tell me a little bit about life growing up in Baton Rouge? In particular, I'm curious, sort of like, what kind of kid were you? What was a snapshot of life if I fast forwarded to you in like, I don't know, elementary school, middle school? Yeah. So I like make this joke, but it's a true story that I don't have an accent because one part I 
haven't lived there for a while, but also my parents aren't from there. And my dad would like correct my pronunciation at the dinner table. He'd say like, you know, Olivia Chair has one syllable and not, it's not chair. So I think that stuck for a while. And then I think at some point, like later, I kind of wanted to sound like everybody else. And so I let it slip a little bit more. Yeah, I'm an only child. It's like a huge nerd. I would like get in trouble for reading under the desk, like instead of paying attention to like math or the stuff I didn't really care about. And one time I, I think I got a D on like a math test in fourth grade and my fourth grade teacher wrote on my paper that maybe if I paid attention, like I would do better. But like, I don't know, I was a big nerd. I liked school. I did well. I have a hypothesis. So I'm also an only child. And I have not tested this. I've not collected data on this. But based on my own experience, I have this hypothesis that only children tend to like school. Because when it's just you at home with your parents, it does break things up. And then also when there's only the one kid in the house, you kind of have to rise to the level of the adults in the house. They don't have to cater to you. Yeah. (laughs) So you become like a little adult, I think very early, if that makes any sense. And also very interesting about the accent. I will say I was curious, but you just jumped in and answered it. I didn't even have to ask it. And so then I, I do have to ask, so where are your parents from? So my dad's from Germany and my mom is from Panama. They met at University of Texas. And then, yeah, so they definitely don't have a Southern accent. I and mean, they were like in their 20s when they moved here. My dad like didn't really speak great English, I think, when he got here and still has kind of a German accent. My mom was raised bilingual, so she has like a very neutral, I don't really know how to describe it, English accent, but yeah. Did either of them attempt to teach you or encourage you to learn another language? Or rather, do you know other languages? Yeah. So we actually didn't speak English at home for a while. So my mom only spoke Spanish to me and my dad only spoke German to me. And so I like learned English. My dad like also jokes. He's like, oh, you learned English in the streets, like in preschool or whatever. And my mom was like a little bit nervous and they were like, yeah, none of the three-year-olds like speak great English. They're three. So yeah. So I I mean, I think I'm really lucky in that it's a lot easier to learn another language, obviously when you're younger. My dad's parents didn't speak English. So that was how I could communicate with my grandparents. And then my mom's family is, they all also speak English. So that was a little bit easier, but yeah. So we did that until, you know, I didn't want to be different. And so I would answer back in English. And at some point my parents kind of got tired of like that. And they also spoke English, obviously. So, but I think that was a huge advantage. Just now I use Spanish more, but like can use both at work and just like in travel. So that really does set an interesting scene or really rather paint an interesting picture. And that when someone says I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Uh, But growing up in a bilingual household of German and Spanish is not the first thing that that pops to mind, which I just think is is fantastic. And I'm I'm so glad I asked. And then, of course, with this podcast, it's this mixture of I just want people to learn about each other and to learn that everybody is a different story and all the stories are interesting and unique. But of course, as the director of diversity and inclusion, there is a part of me when I hear that, I'm just like, that is so neat. That is so cool. Like, you know, just getting the opportunity to explore that and talk about that. But then also, and I'm not quite sure how much we'll even dive into this, but you are, and, and we'll definitely get here, but I'm just gonna go ahead and list a couple of things for everybody. So you just mentioned your senior counsel at Foley, you're on the associates committee at Foley, which we will definitely talk about. And you're also 
active members of the firm's Black affinity group, as well as the firm's Hispanic affinity group. And so I think everything you just talked about does sort of point to that intersectional nature of your identity, which is important because there's a lot of things that make us who we all are. And that's just, I think, a dynamic that we still don't talk enough about in general, let alone in law firms. Yeah, I think that's always been something that I've found to be just helpful. I mean, I have sort of had to identify with a lot of things at once. And so I think that in our profession and just like life generally, I think it's been something I've always thought as a positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll see if we explore that more, but I'm going to push ahead. So you have set the scene for us, only child, speaking multiple languages in the house. Your parents did not let you get a Southern accent. (laughs) Meanwhile, I wasn't doing math. I was reading books. So as you go to high school and start considering college, what was that process like for you? What was the thought process? Did you know you wanted to go to law school? No, not at that point. I also, like in addition to school, I guess, was pretty serious about ballet and dance. So I think I thought for a while, like maybe that would be something that I could do. And like my parents would have been like supportive of me, like trying to take a year before college or something and doing that. But I did really like school. I thought I'd want to do like something with anthropology, like cultural anthropology and, and like Catherine Dunham was like a dancer and anthropologist. And I was like, oh, that would be like a great way to do that. And I just like really loved dance, but also really just like didn't see that my whole life would be that because you just can't really do anything else. So I was just kind of looking for a college experience that where I could like do both things, but like go to like a school where I guess academics were like the focus. I think, you know, I looked at like one school that was mostly dance, but yeah. So anyways, they they generally had to have both. And so that's how I ended up at Duke. And so law school really wasn't on my radar at all. I mean, I, I'm sure many of us have been told this where like, you know, someone would say like, oh, you like to argue, you, you should be a lawyer. And I definitely heard had heard things like that. But I mean, my parents were college professors and my cousin ended up going to law school. But at that point, he wasn't in law school either. So I, we didn't have a lot of lawyers in the family. That goes back to my only child hypothesis as well, because you're often trying to justify your thoughts to two adults you know, particularly if you add in the college professor dynamic. So then they're like, oh, you're good at stating your point. Maybe you should be a lawyer. Uh, or you're like, you forced me to be good at stating my point. Yeah. So at Duke, what was your your major? So I was a public policy studies major. It's kind of like an interdisciplinary major. I mean, a lot of the classes I took cross really cross-listed with history. And I think I sort of there's different like cones, like some people were really into economic policy. Mine, I think, tended to be more social policy. So like classes about like the civil rights movement and just like different social movements and like the policies that were formed, kind of looking at like the Civil Rights Act and things like that as like one that stuck out. But we had these core courses of like econ, kind of like the intro to policy, which had some game theory stats like stuff like that we did have a dance program that had like a dance minor I think now they may have a major so I I just like took those classes and then I was a German minor because I had never formally studied German so I wanted to be able to do that that is such an interesting mix and array of things to work on so we have we have dance happening German as well as the focus on public policy and then either 
I don't know if you want to answer this for sort of the thought process going into college or maybe during, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do with the public policy degree? So I did try out cultural anthropology, like as I thought I would be, and I just was a little bit bored and I wasn't really, I felt like it was just a lot of studying about like cultures and like what happened. And my dad's a sociologist, so I like looked into that too. But then I, what I liked about policy is it seemed like action oriented, just like trying to actually think about like how you would change sort of these issues and systems that you like were studying and all these other majors. And so I think it was like my sophomore year, maybe where we had with this one class I was thinking of, we had like these guest speakers that came in kind of in like once a week in the evening. And this one woman was a lobbyist for the Voting Rights Act. And she had gone to University of Chicago, which she classified herself as like very liberal, but thought Chicago is a more conservative law school and that it really like forced her to sharpen her perspectives and beliefs and that law school was just like really good training for that. So at that point, I thought maybe law school would be just as like, you know, like a good way to train my brain. I hadn't really thought about like the practice of law Mm -hmm. yet. And then like later, I looked into things like the State Department, but I just like kept feeling like, well, I don't know if I want to go to graduate school. Also, like econ turns out not my like huge strength to see the math conversation. Not, not your favorite, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So I thought maybe like being, having like a master's in policy wouldn't necessarily be the best fit. And so, yeah, so I was thinking I wanted to do that by the time I graduated. I, I did take a year off before going to law school though. So. Okay. So you graduate, you take the year off. May I ask what you did for that, that time in between college and law school? Yeah, sure. So I worked on the 2008 Obama campaign. I started working on it at Duke for the North Carolina primary and they like hired me on. And then there are a couple of primaries left because that one was in like April, but I wanted to like go to my graduation. So I didn't continue on. And then they hired me back like in the middle of the summer and I moved to Vegas, which was like, <laughs> not, you know, like telling your parents you're like moving to Vegas is like a little bit weird, but they didn't say anything. And I went Yeah. And it was still like one of the coolest things I think I've ever done. Can you say a little bit more about what you did when you were in Vegas? Because I'm like, I want to hear more about that. (laughs) Yeah. So I was a field organizer, which like our goal was first to register people to vote and then ultimately like to make sure that they voted. We didn't do like a ton of like persuasion. I mean, we did, you know, contact all kinds of people at some point, like ultimately it was like, all right, we're just focusing on getting the people who have like indicated this is the way they're going to actually vote. And so I had a couple of, in Vegas, it's assembly, or in Clark County, it's assembly districts. Yeah, so just like all kinds of things. I mean, part of my district had like the Palms (laughs) Casino in it at some point. So like going to like a career, yeah, like I guess like a benefits fair for the employees. And like one of the things they offered them was like voter registration opportunities. So we'd have like a booth or like, the DMV outside of the DMV was like the hot spot. You could register a lot of people there. <laughs> the great indoor swap meet is like was like another <laughs> one of my big places where I like negotiated that they'd just give me like an empty stall and then I'd just register people. And it was, you know, we registered anyone. We didn't ask about that. Yeah, and just like recruiting volunteers. So well, thanks for thanks for sharing about that. I can also imagine that. You, of course, moved away to go to college, but now you're out of college. You go to Las Vegas. 
And you're working for obviously someone who goes on to be president, something you very much believe in, but it's interesting. It set up all these unique little vignettes where like you just said, I find myself at the Palms Casino and now I'm at the SWAT meet and now I'm outside of the DMV and interacting with so many kinds of people. I just, I can only imagine that that was, was valuable in a lot of, a lot of ways. Yeah, it was definitely like, I mean, I like people, I think most, well, I think most litigators probably do. So yeah, it was just cool to like, to interact with people like that. Yeah. And so, you know, do you, at some point while you're still out in Vegas, you're like, I need to start thinking about the LSAT or what, what was that transition like? Yeah. So I took the LSAT before I went, I took it like right before I went, which was the plan. And so I had this, like, we have a really great pre-law advisor at Duke called, um, his name is Dean Wilson. I think he's actually in like the divinity school, but he just like knows a lot about getting into law school and he's just like really great. So I had a call with him, got my LSAT score. We looked at my GPA. It was like, all right, these are the schools you want to go to. Sounds good. Sounds like that's like a good target or whatever. And then like the recession happened. And then I saw him after the election and everywhere I thought would have been in, let's say June was like, not like no sweat to get into. It was kind of like, uh, yeah, like everyone's going back to law school because no one can get a job or whatever. So I decided I would take it again. And I was also like considering whether I even wanted to go yet. I mean, I still wanted to go, but like, I wasn't someone who like joined this campaign to like work in politics, but at the end it was suddenly an option. And so like, I thought about that. There are a lot of people doing that kind of waiting around. And then I just decided like that I would go. Um, so I took, retook the LSAT in like February, applied, got in. Yeah. And then went to the next year. Well, I'm just thinking about how, you know, the part, point of this podcast is tracing people's path and you just outlined a real fork in the road, right? Which was, I could have gone down this path that was more politics or politically focused, but I kept towards law school. And so where did you go for law school? So I went to Georgetown. My cousin had gone there and I don't know, I just like thought it was really cool. We had similar interests. So it was my first choice. I mean, I knew some about law school from like talking to him, but I just, you know, I really didn't know as much, I think, as maybe some people do going into it. But Georgetown has like a great clinic program. And I just felt like that kind of experiential learning thing in law school would be really cool. So yeah, and I had interned in DC one summer and thought that'd be somewhere I'd like to be. So I'm beginning to think there's something special about Georgetown, particularly Foley's recruitment of Black women lawyers from Georgetown, because we have a number of attorneys at Foley that are from Georgetown. And how was it adjusting to law school? Did you feel comfortable right away? Was it an adjustment? Yeah. So it was cool that all these people were interested in like the same thing. And it was, we enjoyed what we were learning and like everyone was, I felt like everyone just like pushed each other to study. Like it's a lot of work, but you know, it's like the norm was that everyone was working really hard. So that was nice. I mean, not that it wasn't like that at Duke, but it just didn't feel it's a bigger school. Like, yeah, it's different. It's a smaller dynamic and you're all, like you said, you're all focusing on the same thing to some extent. Yeah. And then I did know some other people who like, we didn't plan to go, but I, there are a couple of people like from Duke who were there at the same time. So it was like a nice surprise. So I felt like comfortable, but it was, I don't know, law school is like a little bit weird and it felt a little like high school in some ways, like with the dynamic and like 
kind of that, like, if you've seen the movie Legally Blonde, where they're like, you can't be in my study group. I wasn't really prepared for that. Sorry, I love that you said that because I haven't thought about this in a while either. But I remember when I went to law school feeling like I was back in elementary school, middle school. I mean, because and even setting aside social dynamics, but I had a backpack. I had to have a backpack because the books were so heavy. There was no option. I had a locker. Yes. I think I was often packing my lunch. Like if you compared. (laughs) And what was really funny was because of that, in my view, the law students, we almost somehow looked younger than the college students because we're just walking around with our backpacks on. Just like. Yeah, I remember the backpack switch because like I didn't have one at Duke and like you did have to walk a lot, but I just like the books weren't, you know, they were like paperback books or whatever. And then Georgetown does have a dorm. Um, so there's also like that like dorm component. That dynamic. Yep. Yeah. And so I didn't need the backpack the first year because I could just like go back, you know, go back to my dorm. But yeah, like I think I had to walk like a quarter of a mile to school like the next two years and there was no way that the shoulder bag was gonna work. So I got like a green transport backpack. Yeah. See, I love that we shared and that, that I think that's a common law school experience. I did not live on campus, but I definitely had a number of friends who did who lived in the law quad at Michigan. And that is certainly a part of it. And it can be great from a really having, you know, a 24 hours a day law school experience. Everyone is doing the same thing, but I do think it could feed into some certain levels of anxiety. And as you were talking about earlier, there is that I'm trying to figure out how this works. How are you supposed to study? People are in study groups. Do I need a study group? Whose study group should I be in? Can I be in your study group (laughs) dynamic? That for some is great, but for others, you do need to just decide like, actually, I don't need that. I'm fine studying on my own. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then I think the other thing, I mean, I think people have this perception of Duke as this like elite mostly white, like private school, but Duke is actually really diverse. I mean, they've made like a a very concerted effort, like ever since, like when I was there, which I've now been out for a while. And I don't think people realize that. So I had like all kinds of friends, I would see all kinds of people. And then that I think, I mean, it hadn't been since like growing up that I was in an environment where I was like, huh, I, you know, I went to Duke with like all of these high achieving minorities and I'm not seeing like a ton of them here. Mm-hmm. I think in my, my section of like 110, there were like, it was like me and like four other girls, maybe like two guys. And I don't know, you like hear the stats about like, men in higher education as well. But like, it was just, that was like a little bit jarring to see. I think that was the biggest. And that's in terms of just like other people of color. Yeah. Like just like, like looking around, it just like kind of, it was a little bit jarring. Not that it it felt, I mean, Georgetown felt welcome. And obviously, as you mentioned, there's, there are many black women from Georgetown and like many of them work here, but it was just a contrast from like my college experience. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important you touch on that because also given the subject matter in law school, I think it can even amplify some of that feeling of otherness. I mean, I would think in many ways my law school experience is probably similar to yours, but there's days where in constitutional law, you're talking about certain cases and at their core, they deal with race. And maybe it's whether or not a certain clause applies, but and and there's that dynamic and I think every, particularly every Black law student has experienced this where it's that one case and you feel that everyone's looking at you. Like you're supposed to raise your hand and offer an opinion. 
And maybe somebody's already said something that the antithesis of what you believe, but it, it can create that dynamic of, okay, am I here to represent everybody? And, and it happens in a lot of different contexts. It's not an unusual thing for a minority experience or an underrepresented minority experience. But I do think the dynamics of law school can make it really stark, particularly in just like mm-hmm. certain days, certain classes. I don't have like a particular memory of that, but like like an incident, I guess I should say. But yeah, I mean or like talking about criminal procedure, like criminal law. Yeah, it can be a little bit different. Yeah, well, there's just like an added an added layer there because I think everybody, no matter who you are in law school, is dealing with so much, but it's kind of just, it's one more thing. Mm-hmm. So how does Foley show up? How do you get connected with Foley and Lardner? Yeah, so I did not think that I was going to work at a law firm. Like, again, I really didn't know anything about like the industry as a whole. I mean, I think at this point, by the time I went to law school, I, it was more than just like, like a training thing. Like I definitely planned to practice. Georgetown does also have like a great public interest program. So I think that fit with like the policy stuff and like the stuff I had seen like on the campaign. So, but I just like, didn't know a lot about it. And, you know, I did like well or whatever my first, year and I worked at Legal Aid that summer in New York and that was really cool. But then it sort of seemed like, oh, there's this like OCI thing. And like if you don't try to do it, it will be hard to work at a firm. And I guess I've never been someone who wanted to close a door. And I just didn't know about working at firms and like what that would mean and the opportunities. And I think another thing I was really interested in kind of international like work. And it was really hard to get those public interest jobs, especially at that time. I mean, I think we had a better, had a better job market than the class in front of us, but this was Mm -hmm. 2009, 2010. I didn't do the Peace Corps. I didn't. So the things I thought that were strengths, I mean, they are strengths like for international work. I didn't do the Peace Corps. So like I wasn't getting that X job. And so I just thought I'd look into firm stuff and then kind of realize like, oh, there's this like really cool internet, like private international law component that would be really interesting and satisfy a lot of the same things Mm -hmm. I was looking for in public interest. So I just thought I'd like try it out. (laughs) Really didn't know that much about it. Yeah. And then I interviewed with Foley at OCI. They really stood out in terms of like the feel I got. Well, and we're going to talk more about that, but I just have to comment because I think what you just shared is the experience that so many people have. For whatever reason, you know you want to go to law school, you don't have any concept of law firms or that whole big law world. Some of your peers probably know a lot about it, which you're like, how do you know all this? And then there also is, and I hope I don't sound like I'm taking this too lightly or making fun, but there's usually also a dynamic of people who are like, I'm public interest. If you are public interest, you should not even consider briefly applying to a law firm. What is wrong with you? (laughs) And you're like, wait, okay, but which one am I? But I just had to reiterate that because I just think that experience is so, so common and you're just making the best decision you can at the time. I certainly have someone who was like, yeah, I'll go to a law firm, but I don't really know a lot about any of them or what type of work I might be doing. But anyway, so you connect with Foley. The firm stands out. And so I'm guessing you summered with Foley and Lardner then for that. So I don't know. And for you, we have a little bit of ground to cover because you mentioned your senior counsel. You've been with the firm for a long time, but I don't know if there's anything to briefly highlight from that that time period because now then we're going to jump to your practice. 
it was my introduction to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Like Rohan Virgin Carr interviewed me. He was like my first callback interview person. And he like told me about it. I like never really heard about it. But then he actually went to justice. So by the time I came back for the summer, he was gone. Although obviously he's back now. I feel like the stuff I learned in the summer was like, oh, cool. This is like a whole path of law that's like really interesting to me that I didn't really know much about in other than like layman's context. And I think, I mean, that like is how I got. Which is perfect. And that's like, that's the purpose of the summer is to get exposed to some stuff so that when you do come back, you're able to focus more on, on what interests you. And of course, where the firm has availability and capacity. So now restate your practice again. What are your areas of focus? Yeah. So I focus on government enforcement defense work that has I think my specialty or like what you would look to me for and and not someone else would be investigations in Latin America that you need someone who's bilingual for or representing people before the SEC and enforcement proceedings or like parallel DOJ SEC enforcement proceedings, given that I'm in both groups. Yeah. So it's been the kind of international, like anti-bribery, anti-corruption work focused on Latin America, but we'll do that for other regions as well. You know, and then at the SEC, like securities is is probably something I, I did some in the summer, but my first and second year working with Sandy Weiner that I realized like, oh, this is also something that is very similar, like a similar skill set, although the SEC is its own, like own thing. And so through that gained experience in representing like auditors and other people in in those sorts of defense proceedings. Okay, so I'm way too pleased with myself right now, but I'm just thinking about how some of the other guests on the podcast have made it such that I have a better understanding of your practice and who you work with. So before we started recording, I mentioned how I'd recently had Adrian Jensen on. And so the listeners may not have listened to his podcast, but he definitely fills in some gaps about what an SEC practice can look like from that defense and enforcement and kind of that litigation viewpoint. And then also Christopher Swift, was on the show. And I don't know if you've had occasion to work with him on some of the other international stuff, as I know you focus more on on Latin America. But so listeners, go check those out as well, particularly if anything that Olivia has said is something you find interesting. But I would love if you could even elaborate on how it was. So it sounds like as a summer, you got exposed to this area. But and at this point for you, we're we're rewinding eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. But do you have any reflections on how it is that you sort of settled in on this particular practice area? As much as I liked litigation, I wasn't as interested in just pure commercial litigation in terms of it being like 100% of my practice. And so the government enforcement work, you do get to do some more investigative stuff because if it's an internal investigation for a client, like you're obviously kind of playing the role. I mean, always with the defense perspective in mind, but like going out and like, understanding the facts and interviewing people. If you're in an enforcement posture with the government, you're doing that work to maybe like catch up on what they know or inform them. And so there's just like a different back and forth than like just commercial litigation. And yeah. that just felt like it suited my personality and just like what I was interested in. I mean, I have always maintained like a part of my practice that's been commercial litigation. And I think that's really important because Ultimately, like if those kind of government type defense proceedings ended up in court, like you obviously need to know how to do that. And I think that's one great thing about Foley is that we don't have to specialize too early. So 
I was always interested in the Jedi work and the SEC work, but like I didn't become primary until in Jedi until a few years ago anyways. It was just that type of work plus the subject matter that I guess. And you just said a number of things that I either have to reiterate or follow up on. Okay, so one, JEDI is the acronym in Foley for Government Enforcement Defense and Investigations Practice Group. It is easily one of the coolest acronym names I've heard in a law firm, except it's G-E-D-I. Anyway, just had to get that out of the way. You also mentioned, and this may be clear, but I always just like to, particularly for law students that are listening, just to make it really clear, but I think within the whole litigation sphere, you often think litigator, federal or state court, done. Mm-hmm. Like that's what litigators do. And depending on where you work and what options you have, those that may be your only option. But there is this world of representing someone, it's usually a litigator who does this, in some sort of government, I'll say agency for lack of a better word, is doing some sort of investigation into you. And so what you've mentioned is the Securities and Exchange Commission and a few others. I don't know if it's worth elaborating to tease out the differences, but I just wanted to pause because I think that's something if I was still in law school, I might not have fully appreciated the differences between. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the two agencies for me have mostly been the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, and then the Department of Justice and different parts of justice. So there's the criminal fraud section, which is under main justice, and there's an FCPA unit there, and there's a healthcare fraud unit. I mean, my work has been with the FCPA unit, but before, when I was more junior, I'd also done some criminal antitrust work, and you know, that can be, there could be like local U.S. attorney's offices working on things like that. I want to take you back, if you don't mind, to the FCPA, which as I've generally vaguely recall, I think is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Yes. What is that? Like what, I don't know, how does that come up for some more company organization? Yeah. So that is a lot that's actually has joint jurisdiction in terms of enforcement with DOJ and the FCC, which is another reason why those two practice groups have made sense for me. And I think my first FCPA case was actually before the FCC, but it's a law that basically says a U.S. business or its subsidiary or people working for that subsidiary, even if they themselves are not U.S. citizens, cannot provide something of value or promise to provide something of value in exchange for a business benefit. Like basically mm-hmm. you can bribe someone in another country to get like the construction permit you need for the Walmart you're trying to build in Mexico is a publicly known example, I guess. And this is obviously like me not, I'm not like quoting the. No, 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 no. You're, just giving, yeah. you're giving the gist. Well, and I, I just appreciate that because those are words that I might see on someone's bio. It says FCPA, and I don't know what that means, but it's also just a good example of something that may or may not rise to the level of violating that has come up for a large company and Foley or another large law firm or somebody with experience in government enforcement investigations and defense will come in and help. And I won't put you on the spot anymore and make you explain the details (laughs) of your practice, but I do appreciate it. And as I think all the listeners at this point know, we're not here talking legal advice, but this is exactly the sort of stuff that I just don't think you hear about when you're in law school. It's sort of like, are you going to be a litigator or are you going to do corporate? And you learn the federal rules of civil procedure and that's about it. But actually in our last, I don't know, 10 minutes or so together, I wanted to switch gears and talk a little bit about your role as a member of the firm's associate committee. And before I allow you just to elaborate on that, I did just want to pause and say, 
the associates committee at Foley is something that I have found to be really unique and that I've worked at a number of firms. And many of those firms, not all have had an associates committee, but I've been really impressed by the role the associates committee at Foley has and the voice the committee has. And so that's why I'd love to get you just to say a little bit more about it. Sure. Yeah. So the Associates Committee is a group of associates and senior counsel from each office chaired by like one associate or senior counsel that liaises basically with firm management and then the the non-partners in their respective offices. So we bring the concerns of those non-partners to management. We get information from management and kind of serve as a conduit to back to our offices. Yeah, I think the firm invests a lot of resources in the committee, which I think is why that's a signal that they value our input. And I think like one of the coolest things is once I was actually on it, having those meetings with Jay and Stan and like seeing them really like value our opinion and the opinion of like the people we were representing was just really cool. Yeah, I'm nodding as you say that because it's just something that I do think is unique, shouldn't be taken lightly for me. So I started at Foley on a Monday and later that day I flew to Houston so that I could attend. I think it was day two of an associates committee meeting because it was an opportunity to meet some of you all. Everyone on the associates committee is from around the country and everybody flew in back when we could do things in person. We obviously aren't doing this now, but also our CEO and our managing partner, Jay Rothman and Stan Jaspin were there in meetings with you all, getting your feedback on things and really doing the best that they can to hear the concerns of the associates and senior counsel and do what they can to to address them. And so I just, it's really, really neat not to knock any other associates committees anywhere else. It's just my personal joke. No one get mad at me, but often what you'll see for committees like that is it's sort of like, you're talking about like what sort of coffee you have in the offices and the things that you guys are spearheading and raising in the firm goes so much beyond that and being substantive. And so and I just had to add that because it, it really is awesome, the role it plays. Yeah. And it's been really fun too. I mean, like, yes, I think we do focus on really substantive business things. And I will say I've learned a lot about the firm just getting to be in those conversations, which has been really cool. But it's also like really nice to see people from other offices. It's like one of the things I miss most. We've still been meeting virtually, but I miss those quarterly in-person meetings. I just like generally, I feel like when I've had to work on like a cross office project, whether it's like a committee like this or like a case, it's just, we're all like very different, but I always just marvel at like how well people from other offices get along with one another. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to I don't know that I'll still, I'm supposed to be rolling off the committee at some point. Right. At some point you do sort of age off or charm off it. Yeah. But like to the extent I am, when we, whenever we do get to go back in person, I would look forward to that. Yeah. And that's actually a little bit of a segue because we're talking about something, you know, about Foley that's unique and, and is great. And also I think one of my, I, I frequently list my goals for this podcast. So if someone's listening, they're like, she's a lot of goals. <laughs> but one of them also is to sort of magnify your ability or attorney's ability to engage with people. So if for some reason you're super busy and someone reaches out, you're like, Hey, I can't chat right now, law student. But here's this episode where I was on the firm podcast. Um, that'll really give you a sense of who I am and why Foley. And so I have to jump a little bit also to the Foley in general, whether it be sort of what attracted you to Foley or what is, has kept you at Foley. Are there other unique things about the firm that are worth highlighting? 
I mean, I'll just go back to the people. I feel like that's something I talked about when I said like what caught my attention during the interview and then like just talking about associates committee. I mean, I really like my coworkers are one of the best parts of this job. And, you know, in our office, we're really close. I think many other offices, if not all, would say the exact same thing. But the DC office, we're all really close. I felt comfortable being myself here. And I think fully understands that like caring about individuals, like that's how you produce good legal work and client service. Like our clients are also people. And so that's what's kept me here, I would say. Like in addition to the work we do is really cool. And like sometimes you're like doing it and then you step back and it's like, wow, that's like a really awesome, like important, impactful thing that we're doing. Or like you just realize how much it meant to your clients. And that's another thing that's, I think when you're a law student, like hard to, it's easier to like think about that. I think sometimes in the public interest context, like, and that's maybe why people start there. But until you like know about firms and the kind of work they do, you can get that same satisfaction. And so I think that's like one of the best parts of our job too. Absolutely. And as we wrap up, I'm going to state some things just so they are out there so people get even more of a sense of you, but we won't have time to really dive in. But I think a, a couple other things that I want to acknowledge you for and just say, you know, you're someone who's very active in the firm, whether it be the Associates Committee, and I mentioned the other affinity groups, the Black Affinity Group, the Hispanic Affinity Group, but also you're very much involved in a newly formed, newly launched racial justice and equity practice group that the forum has established. And perhaps in future episodes of the show, I'll have more time to go into it. But I think the work you do in the firm is tremendous. It's definitely recognized. And we've living in such a weird time that as the firm is seeking to improve on a variety of issues, you know, fully is a great place to work. But hey, I have a job for a reason because there's a lot we're endeavoring to do. But really your work focusing on what we can do to further make the place more inclusive for all kinds of people, but also the what we call the RJEPG, the Racial Justice Equity Practice Group, has been fantastic. But with that, what I wanted to ask you is my final real question is, is there anything else you wanted to say that we haven't had a chance to say, or just any general advice you have for somebody seeking a legal career who's currently navigating their own career? I think in terms of like navigating the career, I mean, I think just like talk to people, there's a lot of different kinds of lawyers. I think people at Foley are always happy to take time and like talk to prospective law students and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be uncomfortable reaching out. You know, I think a lot of people who know more about the legal industry, like they maybe would call and like ask for the virtual coffee or whatever, but like you definitely like that's definitely not weird and people are happy to talk to you about it. And I think people, we want like quality people in this profession and we like what we do. So you shouldn't feel shy about doing that. And I think that's, I never would have like reached out to anyone in law school and now people do it to me all the time and it's totally fine. That's really great advice. Olivia, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. And if someone wants to reach out to you, has questions, comments, maybe wants to ask you to virtual coffee, can they feel free, as, even as you just said, so they should feel free to, to find you on the website and shoot you an email? Yes, for sure. All right. Thank you so much, Olivia. Thanks, Lexus. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Olivia. I'm here with an update, which is that as of February 1st, 2023, Olivia joined the partnership of Foley and Lardner. Congratulations, Olivia. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it. 
subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.